Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 48. This is the word of God. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. For as the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins throughout his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. This is God's word <coughs> this time. Uh, God, we thank you uh, for your word, and we pray, God, that you would give us uh, deep conviction not only about its truth but its reality. Help us to see you through these words, uh, through this message. Help us to know you deeper, uh, but also help us to get a better sense of uh, your heart, not only for us but for the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have been going through the book of Acts, and one of the reasons that we are going through this book is because we want to remind ourselves about the mission of the church. What is the church's purpose? What is the church called to do? And for a nice summary of the mission of the church, a lot of people like to turn to Matthew chapter 28, the end of it, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And that's a good summary of what Jesus is calling his disciples to do. And the grammar makes it clear that basically the mission of the church is to make disciples. How? By going uh, not, and also disciples of all nations, which is going to be a, a, an important point for today. But uh, Jesus is calling us to make disciples. And for the early church, that meant that they would have to do what we call evangelism. And evangelism is when you go out and you share, you testify, you proclaim uh, the gospel so that people would repent, be cut to the heart, repent and believe in Jesus and actually convert, become uh, a Christian believer when they had not been before. And uh, <coughs> if you think about it, evangelism was something that was incredibly important for the early church because in that early time, there were no other Christian believers. There were no other followers of Jesus because Jesus had just died and rose again, and the mission had just began, begun. In history, there are periods, I think, where you know, things like evangelism and mission are probably less emphasized. And one of the reasons it's not emphasized as strongly is because the surrounding culture has largely been influenced or shaped by Christianity. So, uh, for example, as a denomination, we are part of the Christian Reformed Church. We subscribe to certain confessional documents 
in our denomination, and they basically give us our theological identity. It says, like, this is, these are the things that we believe. And uh, for us, we subscribe to something called the Three Forms of Unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort. And these documents are saying, this is what we believe as a church, or at least the officers, this is what we believe as a church, and this is what we teach in our church. And I guess over time, one of the critiques I've heard about like some of these confessional documents that have come out during that time is there aren't really any substantial statements on uh, mission. Uh, there aren't really su substantial theological statements on the mission of the church. And I suspect that part of the reason for that is because when it was written, like a lot, a lot of the surrounding culture had already largely been shaped by Christianity in Europe. Uh, their, their issues were more related to like how Protestants were distinct from Catholics. And so like in the Westminster Confession, you see a lot of uh, these beliefs focused in distinction from what Catholics believe. Uh, and I would say in the history of the United States, it was also a similar kind of context. It's a, it's a nation that had largely been shaped by Christianity in some form or some fashion, which is not to say that everybody was a Christian, but it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to meet somebody who went to church. It wouldn't be difficult to even find a church. And uh, a lot of the values probably reflect and overlap with biblical values. And <coughs> of course today in some parts of the country, uh, Christianity may very well be very strong. And uh, in the past, like you could assume like probably most people have attended a church before, but things are changing quite a bit in our context. Some studies are projecting that by 2070, 2070, Christians are going to make up about 46% of the U.S. population. Right now we're at 64%, but the trend is that number is declining. And I was calculating that in 2070, uh, that means uh, my kids will be, maybe I'll be alive, maybe not, who knows, but my kids will be like in their early 50s. And if uh, they ever get married and if they ever have kids of their own, their kids will probably be teenagers. And if less than half the country at that time identifies Christians and Christianity is on decline, I do wonder, like, what is uh, the spiritual life of my grandkids? If I have grandkids, right? What is that going to look like? Uh, I think about, you know, are there going to be enough churches around? Will they be able to, like, find a church uh, if they wanted to? Like, what, what is it actually going to look like a couple generations from now? And of course, that's gonna, there's a lot of implications on this study on our institutions because there are going to be less churches. There are going to be less seminaries. Uh, and not only that, but <coughs> maybe the surrounding culture will be more hostile towards Christians because the values will be less compatible. Now, that's just talking about uh, an entire country uh, in the United States. And the United States is a big country, so I'm sure it like, differs city to city or area to area. Um, but one of the things I heard a long time ago, people would say New York is probably like 10 to 15 years ahead of other parts of the country. <coughs> um, so I guess if you see like a certain kind of trend here in New York, like maybe 10 to 15 years later, you start to like see it in, in like other, other parts, maybe less urban, but maybe other parts of the country. I, I don't know how people came up with that. Um, but I guess if that's true, then probably, you know, we, we live it. We already know that Christianity is like um, not the majority or uh, not the majority influence in the city that we live in. And probably 
like the rest of the country, even areas of the Bible Belt, right, the, sim the similar trends will continue. Uh, I don't know if anybody reads The Atlantic, but Tim Keller, he just wrote an article in The Atlantic, and in that article, he talks about the renewal of the American church. In it, he talks about his early experiences in Manhattan, where, uh, like, when he came in 1989, like, New York was already, like, not a very, um, uh, already not a culture that was friendly towards Christians, right, towards Christianity, and Christianity had always been in decline. And he talks about, like, one of the old historic churches uh, and how these churches get repurposed. So I don't know if any of you remember the, like, kind of close to where we used to meet um, on 26 and 6. There was, like, this historic church that was converted into a nightclub called the Limelight. And uh, uh, the Limelight eventually now got converted into, like, I think it's, like, a restaurant now. It's, like, a pizza place. But it looks like this historic church building and now it's kind of a sign of like the times of what happened in New York. You used to have like a vibrant uh, Christian presence in New York City, but now the, these buildings, because nobody's filling them anymore, they're not being used as churches anymore. Now they get converted into dance clubs <laughs> <laughs> and uh, pizza places. So here's my point though. Uh, I think this is actually why the book of Acts can be really instructive uh, for us in seeing some of the things that took place in the early church because theologically, I do think it's very important for us to understand the person and the role of the Holy Spirit, especially when it comes to the mission of the church. <coughs> like, let's say hypothetically, like we, we live here, our kids grow up here, they, uh, they, have, they get married, they get jobs here, and they end up staying here, and then their kids grow up here. Like, it is a realistic possibility that... Uh, that generation will have a very difficult time like finding a church, right? Just based on the sociological trends. Not, I'm not saying like the Holy Spirit or God is not going to do anything amazing, but that's, that's kind of the sociological reality that uh, we're heading towards. And because of that, I, I actually think um, all churches, including a church that's all as small as us, uh, we really have to prioritize mission, not just for like what we see today, but um, we have to continually plant seeds for the future and uh, allow God to plant, uh, to grow those seeds, hopefully, and um, I don't know, see what God does in the future. And so the book of Acts, I think, is, is like a very good, important book and very instructive for churches today because, hey, Christians were a minority in the early church. Uh, not a lot of people were believers in the early church. And still, we see some amazing, amazing things happen in that early church, by and large, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the passage that we read today, uh, you know, I kind of cut it short. It's actually the end of a much longer story, uh, and that story is also part of, uh, I think, a, a larger point. And that larger point is this, that God wants to bring salvation to all nations. So if you know the, uh, the history of the Bible, God initially chooses Israel, the nation of Israel, to be his people, the covenant is established with the people of Israel. The law is given to the people of Israel. And therefore, um, by implication, other nations are not part of that covenant. But that was not God's final plan. He did not want his uh, salvation to be confined to just one nation. But God's plan was always to bring all nations to himself. And when Jesus dies and he rises again from the dead... That's an, uh, an important event in the history of salvation because what it now means is 
the presence of God, the Holy Spirit of God, is now, it's no longer confined to a single nation, the nation of Israel, but boof, it's meant to expand, and the gospel is now meant to go to the ends of the earth, and God is now bringing all nations to himself. And we're, we're a fruit of that because we're not uh, of the people of Israel, uh, but because the gospel went to all nations, uh, somehow during the course of our lives or our parents' lives or our grandparents' lives, they came to faith, and now we came to know Jesus Christ because of it. The way God would bring salvation to all nations is actually now part of the smaller story in the book of Acts. How is God going to do that? How does he begin to do that? And that's why the apostle Paul is significant. Uh, he would first convert Paul, who's called Saul in the book of Acts, but he would convert Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians. After that conversion, he would call Paul to be a missionary now to the nations, a missionary to the Gentiles. And that's what God had said to Ananias. He says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And that's ultimately what Paul would be known for, bringing the gospel beyond Jerusalem, beyond the nation of Israel, beyond the people of Israel, now to the, these Gentile nations. And after the conversion of Paul, this story now goes back to Peter and a Gentile named Cornelius. And this is the, the shorter story that I didn't read, but it's important to understand this passage. Cornelius, he is described as a devout and God-fearing man who gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. But he wasn't a Jewish person. Uh, people think that what that means is, even though he wasn't a Jewish person, even though he was a Gentile, he was probably someone who maybe attended synagogue and observed Jewish laws and customs, even though he wasn't uh, officially a part of the Jewish com uh, community and wasn't uh, circumcised. And by the way, circumcision, later we're going to see how circumcision becomes one of the first major theological debates. But for now, uh, we'll just say the transition for a Jewish person to keep separate from a Gentile person to now recognizing that this Gentile person is a fellow, and a fellow brother or sister in a common and shared faith, that transition would have been a very difficult transition for a traditional Jewish person to make. And so for someone who had grown up in these Jewish traditions, they would have assumed, hey, these Gentiles, they're not the people of God. These Gentiles, they are ceremonially unclean in the eyes of God. And that was, of course, one of the assumptions that Peter held himself. God knows that he had to break some of Peter's assumptions about the Gentiles for the sake of the missional expansion of the gospel. So God gives Peter a vision where a voice says to him, what God has made clean, do not call common. And the text tells us that this voice came like three times. It happened three times to Peter. And what that makes me think is like, uh, God wants to really reinforce this point to Peter, right? What God has made clean, do not call common. And just as God had spoken to Ananias to help Paul, God now speaks to Cornelius through an angel in order to help Peter. And this angel tells Cornelius to look out for Peter, which he does. And after he finds Peter, he tells Peter about the vision that he had. And Peter begins to understand what the vision meant about clean and unclean. And of course, what it means is now these Gentiles are going to be included into the people of God. They are the ones through Jesus Christ, through this gospel, who can be declared clean. And this is where our passage really picks up today. So Peter opens his mouth and he says this. He says, now I understand that God shows no partiality, but now people of every nation is acceptable to God. 
And then he proceeds to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ, about how Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit to do good and to heal all who are oppressed. He tells them about how Jesus was ultimately hung upon a tree and how on that third day God raised him from the dead and the resurrected Christ ate with those who were chosen to be witnesses of this resurrected Jesus. And essentially what he's doing is <coughs> he's telling the story of salvation, which includes many of the pieces that we recite every Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was born, he suffered, he died, he ascended, and now he is the one who judges the living and the dead. After Peter says these things, something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit comes, falls upon all who heard this word, and now the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the Gentiles. This is the beginning of the Gentile mission. They start to speak in tongues. They start to praise God. And Peter says, we should baptize them, and they are baptized. And again, trying to emphasize the significance of the story, it's significant because it is now the start of the expansion of the gospel to all nations, to the entire world. God's salvation is no longer just for a particular people, but God's salvation now opens up to become something for all people. And the prophet spoke of a time where Gentile nations would be included into the people of God, and that this story signifies that this time has begun. And even though this passage ends somewhat neatly, I do want to let you know that um, things do get messy for the early church because of this. Uh, after this, there's you know, disagreements, there's controversies, there's some division. Uh, if you look at some of the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, he's addressing some of these issues. Uh, one of the major ones being circumcision. Like Jewish people understood, hey, what makes me um, in covenant with God is a sign of circumcision. And now they're debating, well, do Gentiles have to get circumcised too? And that's one of the early debates. And uh, the larger point is this. I do think mission makes things messy for the church. And that's something that we, we should keep in mind. I think mission challenges our assumptions of the way things ought to be. Assumptions are really interesting in the role that they play in our lives. We don't usually like it when our assumptions are challenged. And I was thinking about why is it something we don't like? And I think it's because when we find out our assumptions are wrong, it messes with the rest of what we think we know. Like it just messes everything up. In my line of work, uh, one of the things that we do is like we, we will create like financial plans for people and we make projections uh, about the future. And in order to make projections about the future, you have to make certain kinds of assumptions. And like there's this like complex software that allows you to like enter in, like literally it says assumptions, right? What assumptions are you making? And you kind of enter it in to make certain projections. So you assume, well, what's the age of retirement going to be? You assume what's the maximum age a person is likely to live? You assume what's the rate of inflation on expenses? You assume what is the rate of growth on investments? Like all these kinds of things. And then depending on the person, you start to add in all these other expense uh, assumptions like, well, what if uh, you have kids and what if these kids go to a, a public school versus like a private college and the tuition costs? What if you retire a few years earlier? What if you retire a few years later? Uh, and all these other things that might happen in life and you program these assumptions and then based on that, you try to generate like projections about what the future might look like so you can make certain kind of decisions today to plan and prepare for that. And if any of those assumptions are drastically wrong, uh, then it basically ruins the entire plan, right? So assumptions are important. 
And I, I, I thought about that, and I think that's what assumptions do for us as well. We make all kinds of assumptions in our lives. In ministry, we make assumptions about the future. Uh, as I can tell, the Super Bowl is today, and I know many of your plans today at 6.30 uh, is going to probably be to turn on the TV and to start watching the game. You're assuming that, one, the game is going to be played. You're assuming that it's going to be broadcast on television, and you're assuming that you'll be able to be in front of a television so that you can watch said game. But what if one of those assumptions are incorrect? What if some freak accident happens and it knocks out a satellite so that the game stops transmitting? What if at 6.30 the power goes out, right? What is that going to do to your plans? You're going to cry. Uh, no, actually, you probably turn on your phones or something. I don't know. That would be upsetting because what you had assumed uh, was going to happen didn't happen, and that just kind of ruins your plan. So I, I do think like the assumptions that we have and when our assumptions get challenged, it does do something to our sense of like our plans, which does something to our sense of control or what we want to happen, right? When our assumptions are challenged, it messes things up for us, but even though they mess things up for us uh, or for the church as it as it did the early church, I think it's still important to have those assumptions challenged, especially if some of those assumptions might be wrong. Because that's part of what it really means to grow. And sometimes that kind of growth can be painful. But if we aren't open to having some of our assumptions challenged, then not only might we find ourselves ascribing to incorrect things, but uh, I think this is what we see like in uh, the wider culture, but we kind of just locate ourselves in these echo chambers and hear what we want to hear, and we cut ourselves off from fruitful debate that might actually uh, expand our understanding of things. And so th that's what happens to Peter. That's what happens to the early church. They had certain kind of assumptions about um, what God was going to do, what God wanted to do, and um, they had certain assumptions about, like, uh, the interaction with like Gentiles and the mission to the Gentiles. And for Peter, these assumptions had to be challenged. And so thinking about these assumptions and thinking about the church and the mission of the church, uh, I want to, I guess, uh, just make three points about assumptions. Um, and this is more of a closing, so this is not the beginning. That all wasn't an introduction. Uh, in this passage, I think we can see that there are probably two things that we should not assume, and there are there's one thing that we should assume, okay? Two things we should never assume, one thing that we should assume. The first thing that we should not assume is this. We should never assume who God can use for mission, okay? That's an assumption that we probably should not make. God uses this Gentile soldier, Cornelius, to open Peter's eyes to what God was doing, to what God had planned. This is the same Peter, by the way, who, starting in Acts 2, right, he preached the sermon Thousands of people repented and believed in Jesus. Right? This is the same Peter, one of the uh, original 12 disciples uh, who knew Jesus intimately. This is probably a, a the same Peter who you would think, oh, he's, he's an early leader of the church. And yet, it was another person named Cornelius who was not even a Jewish person, but a, a Gentile person that God uses to open Peter's eyes, this Gentile soldier. Sometimes it's our expectation that, you know, God uses certain people. And we don't 
probably don't say it explicitly, but I think deep in our hearts, like that's kind of how we operate and we think. And I do think that can hinder us from really engaging in mission and doing what God calls us to do. Uh, traditionally, I think people ten would tend to think, hey, if you go to seminary, right, and if that means you're like professionally trained as a minister, uh, then you're probably the one who's going to be the most effective in ministry and in mission. And I think that assumption is probably not a great one. And it probably creates this bottleneck in the church where now like uh, people think it's like a certain number, certain kind of person who uh, can really do the work of ministry and the rest of the gifts of the church are kind of like not released, right? So I think we should not make assumptions about who God uses for the sake of mission. Uh, second, I think we should not assume who God can reach. Uh, maybe we do some kind of mental calculations and we think about the probability of uh, someone saying, oh yeah, I'll come to Jesus and I will repent and believe in him. And we say, well, that person already has something against Christians and that person already thinks Christians are like unintelligent people or that person's like uh, already a devout Muslim or that person is already in a, a certain kind of relationship or that person is too young or that person is too old or that person is too bitter or that person is too wealthy, right? We have all these reasons that we come up with as to why God cannot reach somebody, um, but we shouldn't make those assumptions. Whatever assumptions we make, I think we all do it and we conclude it, but if we search our hearts and find that these are some of the things that we do, then we, we really need to repent of that because who are we to say who God can and cannot reach? Who are we? God reached Saul, persecutor of the church. God reaches Gentile soldier. Later, we're going to see God reaches a wealthy businesswoman. God reaches a possessed slave girl. God reaches a Philippian jailer. God has reached all kinds of people throughout all of history. Uh, even though I kind of grew up in the church, I would say that's probably an argument for me to logically not have become a Christian because the church that I grew up in uh, fought a lot and divided. And I grew up thinking, wow, the church is like a, a joke and uh, it's also corny. And uh, when I was in youth group, I think I shared this like la maybe last week, like the singing part of it and people singing and like a band in front. I was like, that's so corny, right? I don't want to be part of that. And yet God reached me. How did that happen? Who knows, right? Uh, if you were to place, I, I don't know if I've, I think I've shared this too before. There was a, a time I, I spoke at a, a youth group retreat and my former youth group pastor was there. And uh, I think he really disliked me because I was not one of the good kids. Um, and uh, like me and some other people kind of gave him a lot of grief and gave him a lot of trouble. If he were to like, you know, if he were to bet who of here is going to end up going into ministry? Actually, even before that, who here is going to um, become a believer in Jesus? He probably would not have picked me, <laughs> right? <laughs> I would have been the last person he would have picked. Uh, and so when I came and speak at this retreat, he's like, you're the speaker? I was like, yeah. I was like, hey, sorry for, you know, your youth group days. <laughs> All right? Uh, <coughs> We don't know who God's going to reach at the end of the day. And so we should never make assumptions. Uh, when given the opportunity, when feeling prompted by the Spirit to, to share something about our faith, um, we should just do it. 
and it's not up to us whether God reaches that person or not, but we, it is up to us not to um, make those assumptions that God can't reach that person, right? So that's assumption number two. Assumption number three, the assumption that we should always be making is this. God's heart is deeper than you know, and God's heart is wider than you know. God's love for us and God's love for those around us is much deeper than we could ever imagine. Like you take what you think you know about the heart of God and assume you just scratch the surface. You take what you think you know about how much God wants to reach all people, all, every single person in New York City, every single person in all these nations. You think you know how much God wants to reach these people? You don't know, right? Just scratch the surface. You go in with that assumption and you say, God, I want to know more of that heart. You look at the people around you. Um, you love them because you know God's heart for them is much deeper than you could ever know. Mission is important to, regardless of what's happening, trends, our culture, sociologically, whatever the studies are saying, uh, we, we need to be a people who love to be in mission, not because of these sociological studies and trends, but we need to be a people who love to be in mission because that's who God is. That's where his heart is. God's heart is deeper than what we could ever know. And you hold on to that assumption and get rid of the first two assumptions. I think we become closer to the kind of uh, people God wants us to be. I think we become closer to becoming the kind of church that God wants us to be. And uh, we don't control uh, the fruit. We don't control who, who actually repents and believes in Jesus. God does. But because we know of his heart, we can know that God will do um, amazing things by the power of his spirit. Let's pray.